Good morning. Good morning. I just want to take a second and take it all in here. First view from this perspective up here. So glad to be with you and joining with you in worshiping our Lord in a church family that I haven't been in before is just another reminder that the praises that we sing, the promises that we declare in the form of music are just such a powerful reminder of how we have the ability by the grace of Christ to see through death. That we have a hope that many in this world and many in this neighborhood do not have. So it's a privilege to be with you this morning as eternal brothers and sisters in Christ. And I rejoice this morning that the word of God tells us that the unfolding of his words gives light. The unfolding of his words gives light. It furnishes understanding to the simple. The great commission and all that it entails is extraordinarily complex. And I've been involved in great commission work for over 20 years and I still feel like I'm simple. I need God's word again today to bring light, to bring understanding to my heart that's struggling to catch up with all that's happening in these intercultural and international contexts. And so I want to invite you to, to join with me this morning in prayer and ask the Lord to, to claim and keep that promise to perfect it today in you and me by granting us light and understanding from his word. So join with me in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning as your children, as sons, as daughters who need to be taught, need to be instructed. We need light from you. We need understanding. We can't get our minds around the immense truth that you have purposes and plans for all of the ethne, all of the nations, all of the people groups in the world. Thank you that we get to play a part in that. Lord, I thank you for this church. And I pray that this month of returning again to the centrality of missions, the centrality of church planting, the centrality of the need for daring faith, I pray that it would be a spiritual marker in the life of this church family. So Lord, we invite you right now through your Holy Spirit to inhabit your word, to apply it to our simple hearts. Today, grant us wisdom, grant us light, grant us understanding. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. I assume you have your Bibles. Second Samuel is where we're going to be today. Second Samuel, if you're new to the Bible, you're going to be about 25% of the way into it. And you're looking for a big old section with Samuel, Kings, Chronicles. We're going to be in Second Samuel. And we're going to be in chapter 23 today. 
I had no idea what songs we were going to be singing this morning, and the person who was sitting behind me over here was a fine young man who was singing with all of his heart. He saw me jotting things down during the songs that we were singing, because it seems like in every piece of sacred music, we are declaring the hope that we have in Christ related to the thing that everybody either openly fears or tries to convince themselves they're not really afraid of, and they tell everybody how it doesn't bother them, which is death, right? 100% of us, if we live long enough and Christ does not return, we'll die. These were some lyrics you and I sang this morning. When I reach the final day, not if, but when. The final day may be the day Christ returns. It may be the day that this heart stops beating. But when I reach the final day, here's another one. Unto the grave, this is what we will sing. Unto the grave. We sing it our whole lives and we stare death in the face and we're still singing the hope that we have in Christ. And then just a moment ago, the Savior who crushed the power of death. That's where our hope is rooted. And it's had me thinking this morning about people and their last words. You know, if you, if you know you're going to pass in the next few minutes, you might think carefully about the last thing you're going to say to those who were in the room. There are some famous brothers and sisters in Christ who've gone before us who have said some very famous things in their last moments. I want to share three of them with you this morning. You might have heard of the hymn, Rock of Ages. Augustus Toplady was the author of that hymn. He died in, at an age we would say is very premature, 38 years old, he died. And here's what he said in his last moments. I am enjoying heaven already in my soul. My prayers are all converted into praise. My prayers are all converted into praise. The evangelist D.L. Moody, famous for the Moody Bible Institute, that's named after him in Chicago, his deathbed words, so he's lying in his bed, his sons are next to him, and he is reported to have turned to them and said, if God be your partner, make your plans large. If God be your partner, and he is our partner, Make your plans large. Check this one out. James Hannington, an Anglican missionary in Uganda, the neighboring country to where you guys have work going on in Kenya, back in the 19th century, there was some political intrigue going on that Hannington was not involved in, but he happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time, people would say. He's traveling toward Uganda, and the king of Uganda had him arrested and imprisoned. He was in captivity for eight days, and finally the king had had enough and had him speared twice. So Hannington knows he's going to die in a few minutes. He's bleeding out, and he looks at the soldiers who killed him and said this, Go, tell your master I have purchased the road to Uganda with my blood. The confidence to see, see through death 
and to declare my death, my, my tragic premature death will not be for nothing. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. I have purchased this road to Uganda with my blood. Well, today, 2 Samuel 23, if you know your Bible really well, you know these are David's last words, actually, his last recorded words. And that's what makes this, this chapter unique, 2, 2 Samuel 23. You'll see there the first verse, now these are the last words of David. <clears throat> Verses 1 through 5 are controversial. Scholars see them in different ways, and I'm just going to kind of boil it down for you. Actually, let's read a verse or two, and then I'll boil it down for what the, what the meaning is here. Uh, check it out in 2 Samuel 23, verse 20, uh, sorry, verse 3. 2 Samuel 23, verse 3. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless day, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Then he says this, does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure, for he will not cause for will he not cause to prosper all my help and all my desire? That tells us something here that's important, friends. <laughs> the most gifted, powerful, talented people, they will have people around them that help them complete their purpose and their mission. Did you notice the next section? It's about the mighty men of David. David, who we know was a warrior, we love to picture him out there in the field alone with the undefeated champion, Goliath, and he defeats him. And we, we think of David as being that kind of a, almost like Braveheart type hero. But we forget about the fact that he had somewhere around 37 to 40 bodyguards around him all the time. The most talented person in this room, the most gifted person in this room, the best linguist, the best preacher, the best teacher, the person with the deepest levels of compassion still needs brothers and sisters around them to carry out the work that God's given them. The second thing this passage tells me is this. David is known best for the Goliath victory Maybe the second thing that he is most well-known for is his fall with Bathsheba. 2 Samuel 11, that happens, right? Yet, what, what does he say here? God has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things, and secure. In some mysterious way, even our shortcomings... Even our compromises can't thwart the plans of God. God's plan for the nations, which we know Jesus sums up in one brief little phrase, for all of the nations will hear this gospel of the kingdom and then the end will come. We know they are all going to hear. 
Nothing you and I do is going to thwart that plan. God's purposes will be fulfilled. But there is a question, which is, how will you and I be involved in the fulfilling of that promise? Will we be involved in it? As you and I both know, there's plenty of brothers and sisters throughout this country and the world that are going the whole year without even thinking about the Great Commission. They really don't care that there are unreached people groups out there. They're not thinking about that. They're not going to be part of the story. If you and I are not part of the story, God's going to find somebody else to do it. He doesn't need us in that way. But he is inviting us again this morning to be a part of the narrative, to be a part of the story of how all the nations, all the ethne, the, the, the people groups are going to be reached with the gospel of the kingdom. I hope we respond in faith to that. Well, as we think about who God's instruments are going to be to accomplish this, we're going to take a look at David's mighty men. And we're, gonna, we're just going to look at one little, what's called a vignette. So there's a, there's a long narrative here starting in verse 8, goes all the way to the end of the chapter. But it has a snapshot. It's kind of like a highlight, a uh, flashback, you might even say, of what these mighty men were like. So I'm going to read that with you this morning. We're going to be 2 Samuel 23, picking it up in verse 13. Verse 13. Three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of, at the cave of Agilom when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, literally with desire, is what the word says. David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Next word. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and they drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and they carried and brought it to David. But David would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. God is going to use brothers and sisters to carry out his purpose of getting the gospel and seeing communities of faith planted among the least reached groups on earth, and then he will return. What kind of people does God use to do this? And I'm wanting to ask this morning, what kind of church families does he use to, ac to accomplish this? And I think we're going to see in this passage right here, there's a couple of heartbeats that we see. Heartbeats of the missionary or heartbeats of the missional church that I want to challenge us this morning to step into, to grow into, to embrace and to pray for one another that we might begin to incarnate these two things that characterized David's mighty men. 
Let's look at the first one. Heartbeat number one. The desires of the king are preeminent. They rule. The desires of the king rule. Okay, here's the verse, right? Verse 15. David said longingly, he says with desire, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then they snap into action. The desires of the king in the heart of these mighty men are preeminent. They are first. They are the highest priority. They determine their behavior, their mission, their agenda, their choices, their decisions, everything. The desires of the king are preeminent. And notice what they have to overcome. I'm going to bring out a couple of things here that I think should resonate with us. Things that you and I might struggle with as we try to yield our hearts, yield our minds, yield our lives to the desires of our king. Take a look. The first thing is they love the king more than comfortable alternatives. Okay, what does what uh, King David ask for? He asked for water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate. Now, I would have immediately started negotiating this with David. You know, like, I think we three of us can probably pull this off. Uh, probably won't be able to do the one that's by the gate in Bethlehem, but we can probably go that direction and get you something. Or if we can get that far to Bethlehem, we might have to just find what's available given the fact that the Philistines are there. You know, we would, we would be negotiating. We'd be looking for easier alternatives. We'd be looking for more comfortable alternatives. Jesus says, forgive your enemies. Well, the easier alternative is just don't interact with your enemies anymore. It's just easier, you know? Uh, the person who insults you, pray for them. Maybe I'll just ask for somebody else to pray for them. You know, there are more comfortable alternatives than being involved in the Great Commission. Far more comfortable things. Because the Great Commission almost inevitably involves crossing cultures. And we don't like to do that. We like to do it if we're on a tourist sort of situation where we're being entertained and that sort of thing. We don't necessarily want to be going into villages or settlements, or counties where the residents, or more accurately, their leaders, don't want us there. They had to overcome comfortable alternatives to do what the desires of the king were. The second thing is, they, they regarded the king's desires to be more important than their own safety. We are big on safety in the West, if you haven't noticed. Very preoccupied with it. It guides a lot of our decision-making. That's not all bad. We see Paul in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 2, praying that our leaders would be just and godly people so that we can live and worship in peace. Like, it's not a bad desire, but it's not an ultimate desire. It's not a preeminent factor. The desires of the king have to be the preeminent factor. So look at this in, uh, in chapter 23 again, verse 9. This is a a little snapshot of one of the other mighty men. 23.9. Next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ohai. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. 
and the men withdrew. The men withdrew? Why did they withdraw? Because their lives were in danger. They ran. But he stood there with David in the face of their enemies. Down in verse 11, Shammah. Next to him was Shammah, the son of A.G. the Herorite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But Shammah took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. The desires of the king are preeminent, not safety. Second one in, in verse 15, we see that the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines. It's always safer not to create a confrontation. They go right at the Philistines. Why? Because their king's desire is for water from the well at Bethlehem next to the gate. And the third one in verse 17, David's interpretation of what happens Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who did what? They went at the risk of their lives. The desires of the king are preeminent, not safety. Guys, I don't know if you think about Christ as our king. My guess is it sometimes comes up. We sing it sometimes. There are certain passages in the New Testament where the kingship of Christ is emphasized, but we do have a king. We are hopefully faithful subjects of our king that loves us and yet has all authority in heaven and on earth. And his desire is that the gospel would go beyond the United States and beyond Korea and beyond Western Europe and would go to all of the ethne in the world. That's his desire. That has to be our preeminent desire as well, both as individuals and as church families. Well, I don't know if you guys know this, but Jesus had some last words as well. And it's pretty striking what his last words were. I'm just going to kind of... Uh, Read them to you in sequence. See if you detect. These are the last words of Jesus before he ascends to go be with the Father. I won't read them in their entirety, but I'm going to show you how it's all over the place in the gospel writers and in the book of Acts. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. Mark, the last chapter in Mark is Mark 16, and Jesus' final words are, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. Luke, last words are in 24, chapter 24, verse 46. Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Acts chapter one, you remember he tells the disciples, stay here in Jerusalem and you'll be, you will, the, the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The last words of our king was go to all nations with the message of the gospel. 
That's the desire of our king. The question for us is, will we pray toward, will we encourage each other toward yielding to that so that the desires of our king are preeminent in our lives as well? I've been thinking about, like, you know, how do we, how do we apply this? This almost sounds impossible. And I think the way, I've had 15 more hours to think about this than you have this week, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and share something here that you're just probably now wrestling through. Like, what does it look like for the king's desires to be preeminent in my heart, in my family, in my church? And I think the, the initial way we understand that it would be what I would call like a battle of the wills, you know? So I have my will and desire, which probably has implications for my career. It has implications for where I invest myself financially, um, health, all kinds of things like that. Um, those are my desires. And then we have the Great Commission that's the will of our king. And so it seems like it's going to be a collision of these wills and my job as the son or the daughter of the king is to just submerge my will to his. I think that's the easiest way to understand this. And it's not actually unbiblical. There are many times where we see people submerging their will to the authority of God, the most famous of which would be Jesus in the garden, right? He knows what's coming and he does not want what's coming. And he says, if there's another way, can we do it another way? Yet, not my will, not my desire, but your will, your desire be done. Sometimes, guys, it is just going to be a submerging of your will to the will of the Father. But I think the long game here is not that. Because in our worst moments, what does that create in us? Bitterness, right? This is what I want to do, but for God, I'll just submerge my will. I think there's a better way here, a, a way that reflects God's plan for you and me, which is to transform us into the image of Christ. And these are, I'm going to say it a couple of ways, see if this is helpful for you. We want to pray toward and help each other toward a place where the king's desire is my desire. Or said another way, my agenda, my desire, my plan flows forth from the desires of the king. So it's not a battle of wills. It's me praying and letting you and others invest in me toward the place where slowly over time, the heart that's in here, the mind that's up here that's driving the will, slowly becomes aligned with the, with the desire of the king. It's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen during the luncheon today. It's not going to happen by the end of the weekend. This is why we're here together as a body of believers. This is why we have pastors to equip us for the work of the ministry so that we slowly and surely investing in each other, using our gifts, challenging each other, keep growing in maturity and in unity. That's the long game here. Lord, help me to have desires that flow from your desire. I think that's the, the better direction to go here. Another way to say it would be, 
asking God and asking those around you to help you move toward a place where you're asking this question, God, how can I incarnate your desires in this world? How can I incarnate your desires? How can I be the visual representation of your desires in this world? In some ways, that's what the missionary witness boils down to. I'm standing in the place where I was serving overseas. That's what I've got to be asking. Not like, how can I develop an airtight apologetical response to what this Muslim's going to say to me? That's not really the ultimate place we're trying to go. We're trying to incarnate the gospel in the presence of that Muslim community or Buddhist community or animistic community, whatever it is. How can I incarnate your desires in this place? I want to share with you a couple of verses that they just spoken to me for the last 20, 25 years over and over and over again. When I start thinking about that battle of the wills thing, I try to go to these two verses. Let me give you the first one. You'll remember the scene in John 4. Jesus has just met the Samaritan woman at the well. And if you've ever been in, uh, in a traditional culture, you know that one of the common concerns among your local friends is whether or not you've eaten lately. This comes up all the time. In fact, uh, in one of the near cultures where, where my family and I were overseas, the greeting in that culture is, have you eaten yet? Well, the disciples are doing that right here. So in verse, this is uh, John 4, 31. Jesus just finished talking to the woman at the well and the disciples come back and they're urging him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. Now you know what the disciples are, how they're going to interpret that, right? They said to one another, has someone brought him something to eat? Listen to this. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will, the desire of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. My food, my nourishment, my sustenance, my life is not about proteins and fats. It's about doing the desire of him who sent me. The other one is uh, in Paul's Paul's a conversation with the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. Love this, love this chapter. I'm sure my fellow pastor also loves reading this. Acts 20, the words to the Ephesian elders or pastors. <clears throat> this is the apostle Paul and in verse 20, 24, look at what he says. I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. How would I break that down to the little boy that was singing over here behind me? The Apostle Paul is saying, my goal in life is not to see how many years I can make it on this earth. My life's not precious to me. I'm not holding it back from what God leads me into. My life, my, my desire is to complete what God has entrusted to me. 
I think that's the better place for us to aim, brothers and sisters, and for you as a church, as you're, as you're moving toward that. It's not just a collision of wills. It is, it's turning that around and saying, Lord, help my desires to flow forth from your desire. How can I incarnate, how can I enflesh your desires in this world? I think that's the, the healthier place for us to go. So heartbeat number one is that the desires of our king are preeminent. If you can get there on this, it's game over. I've already shown you. The desire of the king is that the gospel is going to the nations. You will start engaging in the plan that God's unfolding to get the gospel to all the nations. It's game over. Go there. That's where he's calling us. That's where he's inviting us. The second heartbeat <clears throat> is that our devotion to our king is perfected in action. Our devotion to our king, our love for our king is perfected in action. It's completed in action. Notice here what's going on. Just look at this, this uh, summary here of the other mighty men. Second uh, Samuel 23 verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men who David had. Josheb Bashabeth, a Tachamonite, he was chief of the three. He did what? He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. Down in verse 9, next to him was the three mighty, men, uh, three mighty men was Eleazar. He was with David when he defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel had withdrawn. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. His devotion to the king perfected in action. There's a few more here. Look in verse, uh, verse 12. I think I already got that one. Yeah, verse 16. Then the three mighty men did what? They broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water out of the well, and they brought it back to David. Our devotion to the king is perfected by action. Okay? Now, guys, what I'm not saying here is jump into the American mindset and make your relationship with Christ all about what you do. That's not what I'm saying. Okay? I'm talking about an opposite struggle that we have which is, maybe it'd be sort of like a theoretical struggle. We accept the centrality and the reality and the value of the Great Commission, but we allow everything else in life to basically make us passive. We don't pray for the nations. We don't give toward efforts to reach the nations. And we don't go the nations. We get lulled by the busyness of life and the cultural patterns here in the U.S. into a posture of passivity. And so I'm showing you here in this passage that our devotion to our King Jesus needs to be perfected or completed in some kind of action. All right. So let me mention a couple of things here related to missions that I think are hopefully helpful for us. <clears throat> the first thing is this. 
in carrying out the Great Commission, there will always be significant resistance. Significant resistance, like overwhelming resistance. We see that here even in the passage, a few things you may not have noticed when we read through it. This is a tense time. First of all, the Philistine presence is six miles from the capital city. It shows the bravado, the brazenness, the power of the Philistines that they've come all the way in to the Israelite territory and are only six miles away from the capital. Here's another thing. David mentions the well that's near the gate at Bethlehem and the three mighty men jump up and they make a run for it. One way is 13 miles. So it looks like it happened in minutes here. It didn't happen in minutes. This would have been, in a sense, a marathon, right? These guys would have run 13 miles and then come back 13 miles. May not have all happened in two hours. I doubt they're marathoners, you know? It would have been over several hours. But the point is this. There was a daunting obstacle in front of them. It's too far. But they went. Because their devotion to their king was to be perfected in their activity, in their action. And the other thing is there's just a culture of fear, you know, in this scene. I already showed you in verse 9 that the men of Israel withdrew. And then also again in verse 11, the men fled from the Philistines. The normal cultural pattern in this season is run. It's retreat. It's go the other way. But the desires of the king were so important to these mighty men that they wanted to complete their devotion to him through action. Second thing about missions, not only are we going to face obstacles, inevitably and significant ones, missions is very much about the impossible. It's about the impossible. Especially work among unreached people groups. Now let me just kind of kind of lay it out for you real quick here. What is an unreached people group? An unreached people group, you want just a number, the people group has less than 2% of its population in a relationship with Christ, okay? Said another way, an unreached people group is a group that does not have enough believers or enough resources to evangelize its people. 2% seems to be the area where missiologists say, all right, we could probably begin to redistribute uh, missionary assets in other places, at least begin the process, because now they're at 2%. All right, so just to give you an idea, the people group that we work with, 2% of them would be 300,000 believers. Currently, there are 500. So they are an unreached people group. Just to give you a snapshot of the globe here, there are 17,000 people groups in the world. People groups share a language, a culture, geographical specificity, that kind of thing. 17,000. Over 7,000 of them, that's 42%, are unreached people groups. There's another subcategory you may not have heard of, though, called unengaged unreached people groups. Currently, 3,000 of the 17,000 are unengaged. There is no missionary effort, resources, personnel currently invested in that, in that people group. So that's, the, that's what's before us. 17,000 people groups in the world, 
7,000 are unreached, 3,000 of those 7,000 are unengaged and unreached. 85% of them are in the 1040 window. That's a term that we use to describe North Africa, the Middle East, uh, East Asia, South Asia, those areas. 85% are there. And we have 3%, 3% of our missionary personnel are working in those areas. 3, 3% are working in those areas. It's about the impossible. I mean, that's, those are overwhelming numbers. My wife and I spent three months in an area where there were churches there and there were a small number of missionaries that were being sent from those churches, but there were still tons of people that needed to be reached. We went there for three months. We saw a thousand people trust Christ. Then we moved to an area with an unengaged, unreached people group. We were there for 13 years, and when we left, there were eight believers. Unengaged, unreached people groups, they have, the gospel has not been working. The presence of the church and the witness of people like you and me that has a hope that sees through death, they haven't seen any of that before. 13 years and there were eight believers, and I'll tell you, about half of them came to the Lord in the same one month period. So there were many years where there was no conversion to Christ happening. But in that other context, we saw a thousand in three months. It's impossible, which I want to take you back now for a moment. Uh, a date to fix in your mind is 1793. 1793. That is when the modern missions movement begins. 1793. The year earlier, the man who had launched that movement, William Carey, was speaking to a group of Baptists, just like I am today, in Nottingham, England. And he used this phrase in his sermon. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Expect great things from him and attempt great things for him. And then he did it. And he moved to the Sarampore area in India, and he lived the rest of his life there. Did it cost him? Immensely. We don't have time to go into all that today. But that, that's the heart. Expect great things from God, and attempt great things for him. Last Sunday, when I was preaching to our congregation, I told them about this formula that kind of came to me on the spot. We'll see if you like this formula or not. I think this is the American formula for success, right? See what you think. It's real simple. It's got three components. It's my abilities plus my effort plus my connections equals success. My abilities plus my effort plus my connections, that equals success. Here's my question for you. What are you currently invested in that goes beyond those three components? Where is there space for the God of the impossible to be your desperate need so that you can get to the other side of that equal sign? We don't say success. We probably say fruitfulness or something like that. What are you engaged in? Missions is a beautiful thing to invest in. The 
the God of the impossible will meet you in the impossible task that you've signed up for, and you will experience him in ways that you never imagined. As we think about the Great Commission, what can you as a church family invest yourself in that's impossible? And what can you personally invest yourself in that's beyond the sum of your abilities and your effort and your connections? Well, as we close, guys, I want you to see the legacy that these, these mighty men leave behind. Check it out. Great scene here. They come back. They give David the water. And in verse 16, at the end of the verse, but he would not drink of it. He wouldn't drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives, therefore he would not drink it. What's going on here? Basically, some things in life get defined by their last moment or their last stage. And David is saying, he's praying here. You can see he's talking to God. God, what just happened here must not be defined by my dry throat. It must not. This, what has happened here is so amazing, so transcendent, so stunning. You are the only one who is worthy to receive it. So he pours out the water on the ground. David's momentary needs would cheapen the immensity of what they did. To use uh, the book of Hebrews that was referred to earlier, these men did something of which this world is not worthy. Only God is. So brothers and sisters, I want to invite you this morning to just pray toward, strive together toward these two heartbeats. A heartbeat that says the king's desires are preeminent. They are first. And second of all, that you would see your devotion to him not yet perfected until you've acted on it. What's going to happen as a result of that? You're going to leave a legacy that is not worthy of recreation, a career. It's not worthy of sports or food or some of these other kinds of descriptions. It will be something that is only worthy of presenting to God because it's so transcendent and so eternal. Let's ask the Lord to bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning and then I'll turn it back over to Andrew and the crew or whoever's coming up. Father, I thank you for every brother, every sister in this room. Each of them has a unique story. And there's not a single one of us in this room who you are saying, my great commission is not for you. Rather, you are calling each and every one of us into it. And we confess, Lord, from, for us most of the time, it's battle of the desires. I'm going to submerge what I want to do to what you say I should do. And Lord, I pray for each of us that the work, your sanctifying work through the Holy Spirit would advance noticeably. And that we would be asking the question, how can I incarnate your desire in this world? What does it look like for my desire to actually be your desire working through me? 
And Lord, I pray for us as we struggle with our passivity and our fear and just ask, Lord, that you would help us to see our devotion to you as still incomplete until we've acted on it. Give us courage in that, Lord. And I pray for every family in this room. I pray for this church that they will leave behind a legacy that is worth far more than the sum of people's abilities, efforts, and connections. It would be an offering to our eternal King. It's in your name that we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.